Today we have with us Dr. Beatrice Gallome. Dr. Gallome is a professor of medicine at UC San Diego, where she focuses her research on conditions related to oxidative stress and cell energy impairments. She's the author of the paper that we discussed today, entitled Diplomat's Mystery Illness and Pulsed Radiofrequency Microwave Radiation. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gallom. My pleasure. So I wanted to start by asking you if you could uh, describe why the Cuban diplomatic incident was of interest to you, and then how you came to the conclusion that uh, microwave radiation might have been the cause of the symptoms that you see in the embassy employees. Well, I think that from the time the reports first began to come out, uh, describing both the characteristics of the symptoms and the unusual sounds that were reported by a number of the diplomats, um, the, the sort of hypothesis that this might be microwave radiation uh, sort of was evident. And then as more specific information came out, uh, you know, relating to the character of the sounds um, particularly, uh, you know, that, that began to feel as though it was the only possible uh, explanation. So um, normal sound is air pressure waves, and microwave radiation is, radio free, is you know, electromagnetic waves. And electromagnetic waves don't normally lead to the perception of sound, um, but they can in the setting of pulsed radio frequency and microwave radiation. Um, and the, the characteristics of regular sound and of the perceived, uh, quote, sound, unquote, <laughs> with microwave radiation differ in certain, uh, you know, characteristics. So, first of all, uh, only certain uh, sound characteristics are perceived with microwaves, and these include things like chirping or buzzing or hissing or clanging and it, you know, each of these and, <laughs> and only ones that have been reported with microwave radiation are ones that were described by uh, diplomats. If there were a sonic source, a sound source, there'd be no particular reason to hypothesize that there'd be different character of perceived sounds for different diplomats. So the fact that the sounds were different already uh, is, is interesting and points you know, away from sound, but the specific character of sounds, uh, you know, pushes that much further. Uh, next is the fact that, according to news reports, these sounds were heard almost exclusively at night. The microwave auditory effect, even when it's perceived to be loud, can only occur in the setting of low ambient noise. So if this were not the case, it would exclude uh, microwave radiation as the source of these perceived sounds. It was reported in news media that individuals that the sound seemed to be tightly localized in space, which was said to defy known physics. Well, it defies physics of sound, but it doesn't defy physics of radiation. Uh, this quote-unquote laser-like localization is not only possible, but lasers are, in fact, a form of electromagnetic radiation. And so it was represented that the same individual, when they moved a little bit, the noise would go away, and when they moved back, the noise was back. Again, a loud noise in some cases would seem to disappear with a short movement in space, like getting out of bed uh, and, and return you know, when, the, when the original localization was restored. And in other instances, one person would hear a sound and someone nearby uh, would not hear the same sound. Uh, so there was each of these features and other ones, like uh, you know, five of the diplomats reported covering their ears 
and this did not attenuate the sound, which would be expected, again, for microwave auditory effect, but not for, for sound. So all of these features fit uh, as predictions or expectations with sound uh, emanating from, with perceived sound, it's not really sound, uh, emanating from microwaves, from pulsed microwaves specifically, but not from, uh, from actual sound. So the next characteristic that uh, almost forces the conclusion is the profile of symptoms um, that were reported in the diplomats, which included you know, sleep problems, headache, and cognitive problems at the top with um, somewhat lower but still high rates of dizziness, tinnitus, irritability, and some other symptoms. And uh, essentially, in order, <laughs> these are, are the same symptoms in very close percentages as have been reported for people who experience health problems with, uh, with radiation, often, but often microwave radiofrequency radiation, but not exclusively. And we're interested in conditions that are often multi-symptom, and I know of no other condition that causes this profile of symptoms in a similar sort of frequency spectrum. Uh, so, you know, we compared the rates of reported symptoms in the Cuban diplomats to those reported in people with electromagnetic uh, sensitivity in a study in Japan, and, you know, 81% headaches, 81% headaches, 81% cognitive problems, 81% cognitive problems, you know, similar rates of, of sleep problems, tinnitus, dizziness, et cetera. And then the final characteristic of interest is that it is known that the U.S. Embassy in Moscow had been microwaved beginning in the 1950s and continuing for several decades. Um, and in that instance, U.S. personnel uh, in the embassy reported health problems. There was a study commissioned, uh, but it wasn't, they weren't really a analyzed until many of them had been long out of uh, the embassy and it produced some significant findings of relevance uh, to what is known about microwave effects. Um, but overall, uh, it was a sort of equivocal study. The other problem with that study was that the control group that was used were diplomats in other Eastern European embassies, which is the group most likely <laughs> to have also been exposed. And indeed, evidence emerged later that some of those individuals had been exposed. So the character of the, quote, unexposed control group was not necessarily unexposed and uh, the, the, quote, exposed group was, was often long after their exposure in that study. Good. Well, that's a great, that's a great summary, and I thank you for your carefully researched paper. Uh, one follow-up question on that is, uh, I know that there are some, some suggestions that microwave radiation of the level that can cause an auditory percept might not necessarily be it doesn't need to be high enough energy so that it would cause neurological damage. And I think, I mean, you mentioned that the Russia, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Russia, mm -hmm. um, with um, diplomats there, there were some neurological effects that were documented. Uh, so I wonder how you would respond to the to the idea that the level of stimulation that you need for auditory percepts is not necessarily enough to cause uh, neurological damage. Well. You know, I would agree that that is likely the case. Um, the issue of neurological damage involves several considerations. Uh, an important one is that not everyone who is equally exposed is equally affected, and we see this in the civilian community very strongly. 
and there are data that help us to understand why that is the case. I mean, first of all, it's the case with any exposure that has adverse effects. <laughs> Not everyone responds equally. But in the case of uh, radiation specifically, uh, there was a study that was an Italian-Russian collaboration that looked at genetic factors related to oxidative stress defense and showed that people who were sensitive to radiation uh, indeed were significantly more likely to have gene variants of genes important for this oxidative stress defense that, that conferred less protection. Um, a study in France by Belpalm that looked at about 700 people that report health effects with radiation, same levels of radiation that don't cause problems in other people, uh, found many characteristics in these individuals. But the one that was consistent across them was depressed levels of melatonin as assessed by a urinary metabolite of melatonin. And people think of melatonin as just for sleep, but in fact, melatonin is one of the critical antioxidant systems in the body and there are literally scores of studies that have shown protection by melatonin against radiation injury really across the electromagnetic spectrum, whether it's the, quote, extremely low uh, frequency radiation that you get with power lines up through radio frequency radiation, gamma radiation, uh, X-ray radiation, ultraviolet radiation. Melatonin is a critical protective system. There are studies that indicate that in some people, radiation actually itself depresses melatonin, and some of the mechanisms by which that um, may occur have, you know, are known, uh, but this does not seem to occur equally in all individuals. And what, what may be going on is that in a subset of people, uh, exposure or repeated exposure depresses these defenses, and melatonin may not be the only antioxidant system that is depressed with exposure, and that renders individuals more vulnerable to developing uh, neurological and other effects of radiation. Oh, very interesting. Um, maybe you could say just a word about, uh, th uh, maybe just a brief word about the mechanisms that radiation might have to suppress melatonin. Well, uh, there are a couple of them. One is, you know, within the cells that are, are producing the melatonin, there is an impairment of the conversion of serotonin to melatonin. And some studies show elevation of serotonin and depression of melatonin. Um, but it's also the case that a factor that is increased in a number of uh, affected people is histamine. And it is known that histamine, through a specific histamine receptor, can actually lead to uh, what amounts to degradation of the pineal gland where melatonin is produced. Yes. Okay. Uh, so that's really interesting, and that's something I, I hadn't gotten before, but that, that um, seems to make a lot of sense. Great. Well, uh, again, thanks for the really well-documented paper that discusses the what seems to be the most likely cause of these events. Uh, I also wanted to see if I could get a comment from you, maybe as this is an outlet for some of your concerns that you had about the lack of credit that was given to you for coming up with this theory, especially uh, in the way that it was presented in the September 1st issue of the New York Times. Uh, maybe you could say a word or two about how this might have been mishandled. Right. Um, well, I think uh, the the, the main features that lead me to feel... <laughs> Uh, sort of abused in this setting were that 
Uh, this came to the New York Times through my work, uh, an op-ed that I wrote uh, and was submitted by me and uh, the second time around co-authored by Frank Clegg, uh, who is the head of um, Canadians for Safe Technology and the former president of Microsoft Canada. Uh, that letter in, outlined this theory and included the many citations. Um, I was called by, this was passed without my consent to a reporter at the New York Times, um, although not with specific malfeasance by the New York Times. I won't go into how that happened. And he looked up the references, including the uh, Glazer reports in the 1970s. Uh, the 1971 report, for example, had about uh, 20, over 2,300 citations specifically delineating health effects of radiofrequency radiation with whole chapters on many of the effects reported by diplomats. And uh, when I first spoke with him, I told him it wasn't really my goal that you know, my hard work and <laughs> insights become someone else's story. And he reassured me that that wouldn't happen and that the focus would be on, on my work. And that's not ultimately what happened. It was sort of implied that you know, I was late to the game and that my contribution was incremental. Uh, and perhaps the main credit went to the University of Pennsylvania's Douglas Smith, who's, uh, <laughs> who clearly did not come to this first or independently. Uh, the New York Times reporter was aware that I had sent a letter also outlining the rationale for this hypothesis, also with over 90 uh, citations, in January of 2018 to uh, Dr. Rosenfarb, the top doctor at the State Department, who said that it made for very interesting reading and that he would uh, distribute it. And shortly thereafter, the, the paper by the diplomats' doctors came out in which radiofrequency radiation and microwave radiation were never mentioned once in the whole article. You know, it was suggested that uh, it could be psychogenic or various other hypotheses, but this hypothesis was never mentioned. So it's clear that this was not on their radar, so to speak. Um, prior to that letter to Rosenfarb. And New York Times reporter was very well aware of this. William Brad was aware of this. He also had copies of that letter to Rosenfarb and the response by Rosenfarb. In his response to me, when I objected to the characterization, he said, oh, but um, you know, other people, uh, specifically James Lynn, you know, published on this first. Well, he published the idea, but he did not publish uh, you know, a defense of the idea. There was not a single citation related to health effects. It was not in the scientific publication, incidentally. He has a column in Microwave News that he's able to use for those kinds of things. And he, you know, Broad knew that he, the timing was not that he had the idea first. But I'm, you know, I'm happy to have him have credit for, for, for sharing the idea, but what matters is an idea that's represented in a way that, it is com that is compelling. And there's a reason that the idea did not have traction at the time uh, it was presented by him, because it didn't have the specific characteristics that tie the microwave auditory effect to the effects perceived by diplomats, and it didn't have information about the health effects or specific citations uh, giving credence to the idea that such radiation could cause the specific health effects that were reported. So I actually communicated with a journalism professor who had himself been a journalist for 20 years. And he said that most of the forms of recourse that were once available are no longer available. Uh, New York Times no longer has an ombudsman. Um, this is primarily because print news media 
you know, are much less lucrative than they used to be. And he mentioned an incident that he himself experienced in which a woman was the lead author on something. She was the one who had written an op-ed on the topic. She was the Canadian and the lead Canadian newspaper, the Globe and Mail, had uh, run a story implying that he was the lead party. So I don't know if this is a phenomenon in which a paradigm-shifting idea in a technical field prefers to be credited to men or if there are other factors going on here. Um, but I did feel misused by the process. And uh, William Broad had asked if he could have an exclusive uh, in relation to my article that was coming out. And given his representations, I said yes. The New York Times moved their story by a day. We had timed the press release at UC San Diego to be the same day as his paper so that he would have his exclusive. But because the New York Times moved theirs by a day, our press release came out one day earlier. And we had a lot of interest that day, including by two different New York Times reporters. And all of these individuals I told, I have to wait until this New York Times article comes out. But once it came out, there was no longer any interest because it was no longer my story. All the interest went to Doug Smith, the University of Pennsylvania doctor, who was mischaracterized as having come to this sort of apparently uh, first and apparently independently, and who incidentally has, hadn't published anything related to this in any venue. Okay, so thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. And again, I appreciate your thorough description of um, causes for the embassy attack and also being able to get out uh, your version of how the story was handled. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.